Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. I'm Tuvia Kopstein, and in this episode of Our Tribe, we sit down with Bensi El Kubi, and we have a great time, a crazy time, as you might say. Bensi is the CEO of Fluent Talk. Fluent Talk is a unique service which helps non-native English speakers learn English fluently with a very unique and worked out coaching methodology that you hear all about. Bensi has a great story to tell, a pretty wild story, and not only the personal story, but also the business story. We think you're going to love this conversation. He's animated. And I would be remiss to not mention that Our Tribe, the podcast, is powered by the Podcast Fellowship. Podcast Fellowship, if you don't know yet, is an international Jewish outreach organization, nonprofit, which is helping Jewish young adults all over the world connect with local mentors and discuss Jewish wisdom that is their heritage. Check it out at podcastfellowship.org. Without further ado, Our Tribe, the podcast with Bensi El Kubi. Okay, welcome back. We are here with Bensi El Kubi. Is that correct, Bensi? Yes, you pronounced it correctly, believe it or not. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, Bensi, we are so pleased that you can join us and share with us your world. Okay, so first, Bensi, tell us, can we, let's get the overview. What is it that you do? And then we're going to get into how did you get there? Okay, so I'm actually in a very, very interesting industry. Um, so basically what we do is, as you know, as many of you have known, many of you probably don't know, um, there are, you know, obviously outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, we have, you know, probably the biggest Jewish population is located and concentrated within the New York area. And we have many different, you know, sects of Judaism. And one of the main sects, of course, are the Hasidim. Now, Hasidim are like are probably historically the most traditional of Jews, meaning that they have kept their traditions from, you know, let's call it pre-war Europe or whatever it is. They have kept those traditions going strong and, you know, walking down a typical avenue or street in Borough Park or Williamsburg today. um, I was actually just there two days ago and you would honestly, there are certain, there are certain uh, aspects, points over there that you would honestly think you're in pre-war Europe. Um, And that's kind of, kind of awesome because they've been able to capture their tradition even though so many of you know obviously we had the holocaust and even though so many of their traditions and so many of their values were you know basically took a break for five years their whole societies their whole everything their whole uh that entire sect of judaism from europe had like a five-year break and they were able to like recreate it and continue with those traditions so it's been incredible and uh also break I, i would call it more like a decimation Right, right. <laughs> like saying that I guess the the, 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 Hasid, the Hasidic culture was interrupted and and had a rebirth. Anyone who was yeah. who was there in Europe before World War Two, you know, was, was it was there. Were, of course, there there were there were there Hasidic people in in other countries besides Europe outside of Europe before World War Two. 
So I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm from Sephardic descent, so I don't really know. My wife has actually just come back from a week-long uh, trip in Poland, believe it or not, with her. She went with some students over from Nevada, from here in Vegas, Nevada, and uh, she's come back, and she's teaching me the history. She's from Ashkenazic descent and potentially some Hasidic descent, but I am from Sephardic descent, so we were grew up in Morocco, the generations up. So I really, I, I have not versed myself well enough in these things. I should be reading more. But uh, but I, I I think it was mainly concentrated in in, in yeah I, I guess in, I guess where, where was it in Europe before the yes. Second World War mm-hmm. okay. yes so obviously there were those that you know foresaw what was going to happen they moved to America before that maybe before the war broke out but uh, basically so they have been able to recreate and or whether it's recreate or continue really really um, closely obviously certain you know subtleties have changed but on 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 a broader from from broader perspective they've really been able to recreate that continue with that and um, one of the things is is that because they they live these beautiful you know family uh, family oriented lifestyles they have their very um, let's let's call it what it is it's sheltered but in a beautiful beautiful way I tell my wife sometimes you know if I could only be Hasidic so many times I've told her um, you know there's, there's so many haters out there and they're like hey, you don't want to be Hasidic you don't really, you don't want to be Hasidic but I've told her so many times if only I could be and every time I go there I just like it gives me stress you know I go on many business trips to New York. And every time I, you know, go into one of these enclaves, it gives me strength to go further. Um, and they are slowly, you know, obviously breaking out and, um, you know, education and everything has just gone up, you know, by leaps and bounds because I've been able to balance the tradition and the shelter, the shelteredness with which they want to bring up their families, kids and the, their, you know, generation, their generations, basically. Um, and they've been able to balance that with, um, um, providers that are willing to uh, cater to their, you know, and, and not compromise their values. So the, 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 the explosion of education, we see many affiliate college programs, many which, with which we work, and we've seen people who would have never dreamt of, you know, going to um, colleges because they were scared and they wanted to shelter themselves from outside experiences and outside influences. Nowadays, they're able to do that. Um, so basically what we did, we opened, I guess, three years ago, um, I'm, I'm, should, should I just jump right? I, I guess I'll just jump right into how I got here. So three years ago, just after I, uh, you know, oh, wait, just after, we, we still okay. don't know what you're doing. We just know that. Okay. I'm sorry. So yeah, I apologize. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 so we have developed a program that without compromising on their values. Um, so because of their shelteredness, a, a lot of them, their English literature knowledge, their linguistic skills, all of that is very, very limited. And then when they come, you know, they have, uh, thank God, big families, and they have a lot of people to support on a New York lifestyle. And um, often they find it very challenging when they come in, out into the workforce and uh, they feel that they can't communicate with the people they need to communicate with. So we have developed a like one-on-one tutorship program or however you want to call it, um, however you want to term it, obviously designed specifically for their community um, with the max knowledge and the minimum amount of time. And also the main thing is that we're in con- close contact with a lot of activists within their communities to ensure that we do not compromise on their values. So we basically are providing them what they need in the way they need it. And it's been an incredible experience. Wow. Okay. Yes. So so many questions I'm going to have about this, but tell me, let's t- tell, tell us your story. How did, where did you start? From? You said you were of Moroccan descent. Uh, you have some kind of non-American accent. Can you tell us where you're from, where you grew up and, and what brought you to this fluent talk to servicing the Hasidic communities and helping them 
speak English. Okay, so you've asked you've asked quite a broad question. Let's just run through. Until I was 18 years old, I had never stepped foot in the United States. Maybe for two weeks as a baby, my parents brought me for a, brought me for a quick wedding, but nothing that I could remember. Um, so obviously, I come from Moroccan descent on both my father and my mother's uh, side. The reason why I look like an Ashkenazic Jew, my two grandmothers were both Ashkenazic, um, and. The, so, so I grew up. I was born in Newcastle, England. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And then I, I'm not sure if it was Gateshead or oh. Newcastle, but our family were part of the Gateshead Jewish community. And then when I was 11 years old, we moved to Manchester. And then until 18, I had literally never even thought of leaving England. At 18, I got accepted to quite a prestigious yeshiva, Psaic Yeshiva, New Jersey. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Sure. Um, and I obviously they they learned with a certain a certain methodology that I really really identified with and I'd heard about. And obviously the, the main rabbi over there, his name is Rabbi Meir Stern. Also, I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, and yeah. he he right. So he gives a very uh, he gives a, we call it a shear. His lectures. Um, obviously it was Talmudical College. He gives them in a very uh you know a, a very concise a very sought after way. Um, that I identified with closely and I heard from other friends. So I guess I, uh, you know, flew across the pond. I joined that yeshiva. I was there for, I guess, around two years over which I had many crazy experiences just as a, yeah, just as a Brit in the States. Go ahead. Okay. I'll stop you. It's, it's interesting that as, as an 18 year old or maybe, maybe before you're looking for a yeshiva outside of your native country. That's, that's unusual. Was there something there that you just had friends in, the UK that were recommending this yeshiva for you, or you just were very dissatisfied with England, or what? What was it? Okay, so that, I, I don't want to bring it up, but now that you brought it up, yeah, I, I just didn't fit into the British system. The British system, they're very, as as you know, they're very proper, you know, very um, traditional. Let's say, you know, very their, their their entire lifestyles are is just so wholly different from the American lifestyle, it just, it, it didn't work for me. I was in school. I was constantly questioning, you know, the way, the, the way, you know, we were being educated, the way we were being taught. I was constantly looking for more. And I just felt that, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. In the olden days, people used to come to America. They used to call it the golden Medina, which, which in, 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 which loosely translates, I guess, precisely translates in English as the golden, the golden country. Um, so I guess I, I, I always felt that when I, uh, you know, within my British ecosystem, I just wasn't able to, you know, fully express myself. I wasn't able to reach my potential. I was count, I, I felt I was being squashed by the, you know, the British, um, very proper, you know, way of behaving, way of conducting oneself. And therefore, and I just, I just felt this would turn over a new leaf. I'd just spoken to many friends, many acquaintances. And, um, and thank God it really, it really was. I, I, I found my place that those two years in Shiva were the first two years of my life where I literally felt I could totally express myself, totally be who I was and live to my full potential, believe it or not. And, uh, and I never turned back since, um, you know, so after after those two years in yeshiva, I guess I then went to. So the way it generally works within the Orthodox yeshiva system is that after that, then you go for you know a year or two in Israel um, before you start, I guess, looking for your significant other. So I I, I then proceeded to go. Yeah, so I went to Israel, and actually after already about eight nine months, I realized that you know I, I enjoyed Israel a lot, but I wanted to move on. So my parents actually so. Very, very into it. You know, if you feel you got to move on, you know, we'll support you. We'll help you. So, um, 
Then I started the dating process. Okay, I went through, you know, whether it was British girls or American girls, and eventually in, in Israel, yeah. you, were, you were dating in Israel. So I was, yeah. So it's it's really interesting. I was I was flying I was flying out like a like a baby. I was I was out of there every two weeks, you know. Um, so from Israel to England is a short, relatively short flight, you know, five and a half. What was it? Four and a half, five hours, whatever it is. So I was flying back and forth. And then eventually, you know, my wife came up. She was she was from California, LA, and um, we did we did like uh, my my parents and I as well were very uncomfortable. We were very uncomfortable with like, um, you know, I, I wasn't so into the like, you know, meeting someone who I hadn't really really you know heard about and really researched, um, mm-hmm. if you want to call it, if you if you would term it like that. So we um, we did our due diligence, and then I took the flight all the way out to California. Wow. From Israel, and uh, yeah, there so is we a dated. Because right? LL does fly directly. Yeah, I did. I didn't fly directly, but there is direct flight. You're <laughs> gonna hear about that in a minute. So we flew out. Um, we dated. We did it relatively quickly. We got engaged. It was awesome. It was an awesome dating experience. It was also my first time in LA. Um, and actually, again, just because you said who this podcast is, is is geared towards, then obviously I'm just gonna run that. Like I just remember the first date. We decided to meet in the Hilton. On uh, Beverly Boulevard, I think I think it's called Beverly Boulevard. Uh, sorry, Wilshire Boulevard. It's the Hilton Wilshire is a very very prestigious hotel. You know, I think Trump landmark, was staying right? there at the time. Yeah. yeah, sorry. It's a landmark, isn't it? It's a yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's it's just across from the Waldorf. It's 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 a beautiful beautiful hotel. Anyway, the first day, the first, and this was my first like I'd heard about LA bumping into celebrities or whatever, and this was my first like. You know, I, I'd been to New York City. I'd be, I guess, I'd been in in the U.S. for two, like close to two years already, and I had seen my fair share. But I was like, okay, everybody talks about L.A. Let's see what Los Angeles is all about. I come in for, so we decide to meet up there, and I walk in, and there was an actually a movie premiere going on over there. Mm-hmm. It was one of Brad Pitt's movies, actually. Um, I don't know if you know the name. And and then as I walked in. Um, I was, I, I nearly fainted because I literally, like, I'd heard about LA. I didn't realize, like, you know, obviously people exaggerate, you bump into celebrities, but literally Jennifer Aniston and, um, and Leonardo DiCaprio were there for this premiere. And I had just landed the day before and I was shocked off my feet. I just didn't realize that that, uh, obviously, you know, that's not the general and it happened to happen. But, uh, of course I proceeded with my day as planned. <laughs> so, no. uh. I have a, a difficult question for you, but I'm sure you'll take it in stride. You grew up in the yeshiva system, which generally, you know, you're talking about dealing with the, Has- the Hasidic community. Generally, the, the yeshiva system avoids the popular culture. How did you know who these people were? That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm not going to lie. Um, so <laughs> I guess, um, I guess, I guess everyone, you know, just to, to, to explore. To explore, I guess every exploring teen. If someone's not an exploring teenager, I kind of pity them um, because it means they're just living because they're, they're human. A, a, a great line I heard from my rebbe, from my rabbi once. He said, "Don't be a human being; be a human doing." And I think that's an unbelievable line, right? Because if you're just a human being, you're just being. But if you're a human doing or a, a human doing, it means you're doing things because you want to do them and because you've decided to consciously do them. So basically, um, and my parents were pretty into this, actually. When I was a kid, I used to ask about all different faiths and all different things. And, you know, a lot of things that in very insular communities would have been, you know, basically squashed um, or quashed, however you want to say it, um, they, they actually they actually entertained. And my father would answer me and he'd refer me to the right books or the right literature or whatever it was. Um, and they were really into, you know, deep thought. 
Um, I don't know whether they wanted me prancing around watching movies, but I, I'll, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, every now and again, I got involved in this crowd or that crowd. And, um, I don't think I watch movies like regularly. I like those years of sake were really intense, you know, a good, like nine, 10 hours a day of learning. Um, and I've really progressed with it myself, but, uh, what can I say every now and again? So I guess, and also, uh. So attention to detail, names. I guess. Yeah, attention to detail. <laughs> Once I see someone, I find out about them, and I just remember it. I, I, I know this sounds crazy haughty, but it's just my thing. And that's how we have, I guess, now 3,500 clients. I know each one, like their names, where they're holding, and everything. And people t- say to me, you've got a whole team. Why are you involved? It's just it's, – it's an OCD attention to detail. I don't know what you want to call it. That's just my thing. So, uh, yeah. So we walked okay. and we dated. So let, let's just run through that. We dated. It was a great experience. You know, Santa Monica. You know, we saw we saw everything. We went down to the valley a little. We, we, we basically saw everything. Um, but more importantly, we dated, got to know each other. And, yeah, and we decided. And, you know, I popped the question after about – Actually, it was only about seven, six or seven dates, actually. Some of them were long, eight, nine-hour dates, full days. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great experience, I was sure. Um, we got engaged, and then, and then the drama started. So I actually flew back to Israel uh, to go back to Yeshiva. We had a whole party there with all my friends. And then COVID hit. It was around Purim time. So mm-hmm. COVID hit, and, I, and we had planned to make the, the, the wedding in Israel. Mm-hmm. But what happened was is that, obviously, so we hadn't set a date yet because Basically, the reason why we planned it is because my parents aren't really good flyers. We didn't think we could bring, and also I have a really large family, so we didn't want to, you know, I'm one of eight siblings. So we didn't want to, and they're married with kids. We didn't want to fly them all out to LA. Instead, we decided we'll meet up in Israel, short flight for the Brits. And, um, the, and my parents, and my parents-in-law are in love with the land. So any chance they can get, yeah, they jump on it. Um, so we decided it'll be in Israel and then, but then COVID hit. So I decided, you know, Passover, family, it's, 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 it's a family. The most of family, I guess, the most family of holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that's grammatically correct, but whatever. And so I decided, you know, I'll fly home to England. I went to the airport, and you know, inadvertently, like even without even telling me, my flight had been pulled back two hours, so I missed the flight. So I was stuck. So I went. Back, I remember going back to my apartment in Israel, being you know at a total quandary what to do. And then what happened was is that my what, the person who I stayed at when I was dating. My wife in LA called me and he said, what the heck, Benzi? You're not flying back to England now. The corridor between England and the US has already been closed off. And that means that if this, you know, no one knew what was going on. And that means if, you know, this goes on for a year or two, that, you know, you, you guys can't get married. So if I were you, I would come to the States. And it was all very overwhelming, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, Pesach, like, it's, it's, you know, Passover is, is, is a holiday you spend with your family. You don't spend it in the middle of nowhere, like, as, 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 a, as a loner. So in the end, I called my Rebbe, and he, he, gave me the, he said I don't have to do it, but it would be commendable. So I got on a straight flight. I got the last flight out there was from, uh, from Israel, straight 15-hour flight, 15 or 16-hour flight. I can't remember it, all the way to L.A., Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and this family that I'd stayed at when, when, when I was dating was absolutely tremendous. It was, it was, they, they, they took me, I, I, it was like a Ben Bias, which for those, you know, unacquainted, I guess about Ben Bias would be, you know, how would you say it? Like I lived at their house, I guess. And they really took me under their wing and I spent pace. I was, and I, like, I, yeah, part of the family. And, uh, they ended up walking me down the aisle, by the way, you'll hear wow. about that. Anyway, so I was in LA and I was in LA, but I was there by myself, obviously. 
And then, you know, we had Pesach and after Pesach, it was just getting really drawn out. I was in the same city as my wife. Like we weren't sure we never had a date. 75% of the ICU at that moment were religious Jews. It was insane. Like, do we get married? Do we not get married? Hurdle after hurdle. Um, and then, yeah, it was, so basically we finally got like one of the yeshivas, one of the institutions over there to let us use their, their grounds. We were going to have a quiet situation. It was in Calabasas. Um, and we decided we'll have it over there. You know, that's about a half hour drive from Maine, LA, I guess, like La Brea City area. And then right last minute, their lawyers were like, hells no, that's not happening. We can't risk it. And we couldn't even get a rabbi to ordain, like to, 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 to run the, to run the wedding because he said, I, I don't think you can have a wedding at such a time. It's such a risk. And we finally, we put in such guidelines. We decided we're going to invite 35 people. Right, each one was six six to seven feet apart. Everyone wearing gloves, masks, the whole shebang, and we had the most tiny wedding. Um, but we were like one of the first Zoom weddings because it was like a week after Passover. During the Passover season, barely anyone gets married, so it was a week over. And before that, everyone was still having regular weddings. So I guess we were one of the first Zoom weddings. We have over over five hundred devices, and when I say devices, I mean computers, like with entire families of you know eight to ten sitting there. So we really had like it, it went kind of viral. And, um, but the worst thing was my parents weren't able to attend. So I actually, so my crowd in yeshiva were actually a pretty wealthy crowd. So I had one friend whose father told me, Bensi, you've got my jet. You need to bring your parents in. You can bring them on the jet. I had another friend who had an acquaintance who had a private airstrip here in Las Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. Which uh, funnily enough, I ended up living. So he told me, yeah, you can use my airstrip. So in the end, what happened was, is that we intended to fly my parents under the radar to LA, to, to Las Vegas, and then I would drive down, pick them up, and take them the four-hour drive to LA. And we eventually, what happened was, is that a representative of a medvac, um, a medvac, like a, a medical association that has flights the whole time, like Chesed flights, you know, called me up and he said, I'm not going to say which one because I just, I, I don't know if they would want their name mentioned. They said, Bensi, listen, this guy can lose his license to have an airstrip if they find out that they brought in two people under the radar, you know, at the time, I was just desperate. So I was thinking, but obviously, to fly my parents under the radar would not be cool. So he said, Bensi, will you get married? Uh, will you get married without your parents? Like, basically, in, in order for us to, to, you know, to not, to not risk this. So in the end, that's ended, that ended, that, 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 that ended up happening. And I got married without my parents and the people I stayed at, we were so close by then that him and his wife walked me down the aisle and it was an insane wedding. And I handled it all greatly until I guess the moment and then, it was all tears and all flying. Do I regret it? I don't regret getting married, but I regret getting married in those circumstances. If I could go back, we should have waited. It was a terrible idea, um, you know, till today. Uh, you know, we, we regret it. But again, getting married, never regretted it. But uh, getting married at that time, it was it was a bad idea. Yeah. How anyway. Could, how could you have known how long the lockdown would be? It would be right, right. But, and her like, family. said, it could have been a year. It could have been two years. Uh... No, Correct. No, no, no. And my wife's family is from a very medical family. So a lot of our uncles were like, this is going to last for ages. This is going to last for ages. So it was really, yeah, I guess that was that. And um, yeah, so I was in, in LA for the next three months after the wedding. And then obviously I'm a British citizen. So I had to get out of there. So we ended up flying to, by then we could fly to England. We flew to England. We stayed there for about a month and a half. I guess it was a summer. We took a quick two week hiatus to, uh, you know, a quick two week break. We went to Italy uh, for 10 days. Um, I guess, Kind of, kind of a honeymoon. We came back, and then we decided we wanted to start off the first two years of our lives uh, in Israel. We moved to Israel 
it was still under extreme lockdown. We had to move, and obviously we were in lockdown. And then eventually, in, in the middle of our lockdown, England became a green country. We were let out. We ran to the hotel, the Western Wall. It was all, it was all, it was all very emotional. Everything was flying. Um, and then uh, I guess we spent we spent as two and a half years there. So I, for the first year and a half, I was in Kolel. Um, you know, I started back in Yeshiva. I didn't like it. I moved to Kolel, which was like a higher institute for Talmudical learning. And then eventually, um, I was looking. I was looking for something else to do. So I started off. A friend of mine, who actually used to be part of the very, very uh, ultra, ultra orthodox, like religious uh, Hasidic sect, called me up and he said, and he'd obviously, you know, gone his own way. He was Zionistic, whatever he was, and he called me up and he said, "Bensi, I'm starting this because I don't want other people to go through down the path I went. Um, I want to bring you in as a coach because I happen to know Yiddish." Now at the time, I lied. I didn't know Yiddish, right? Basic entrepreneur 101, lie on your resume. I'm kidding. I am kidding. <laughs> but uh, I, I knew a little Yiddish. I picked it up. But, um, you, you know, you obviously. You knew enough that your friend thought you knew Yiddish. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. But 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 <laughs> once once I was thrown into it, I picked it up. Like, yeah, thank God I picked it up. Um, and uh, and I, so I started working for him a little, you know, two hours a day. After about eight months, um, I said to him, listen, I, 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 oh, one sec. So after... Four well, or five was, months. What yeah. was he doing? What, is he was doing this training. Yeah. Has so he was doing, he'd started, started this. Yes. Yeah, so he'd started this company very, very small. He'd put out a couple of ads. He had an operation running between him and a partner. His brother invested 15 grand in him just to start off on the venture. And he, he started it, but it was very, very small. We just had a few students, a few slots every day. Slowly it was growing. It was gaining traction. But, you know, we used to sell like lesson by lesson. It was really a mom and pop store. Nowadays we'd never be able to do that because we'd never be able to coordinate all the schedules. But um, so I started with him, and thank God that was great. Two weeks later, one minute, and then and then, then we moved apartments, and the apartment we moved to was in shambles. We decided to renovate, so we moved out to a tiny place, just, uh, you know, uh, in Malot Dafna. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of students are there. There's Asia, there's Orsameach. Well, sorry, it's Orsameach over there. Um, and... Uh, and, and we, so we were in this tiny place. It was terrible. Um, we were just in between. And this is when I started working for this, uh, for this guy. So I was sitting there on a laptop. We barely had a table. It was tiny because we just guessed it would be a few weeks as our place would be renovated. One night I was, so I was working one night. I woke up with the most excruciating pain ever. And we obviously rushed to the hospital. We rushed to the emergency room, Terem, for those students that are in Israel. I'm sure they've heard of it. And then eventually to the hospital. We had no idea what it was. So for a year already, I knew I had something in my left ear blocking my hearing. I thought it was just a buildup of wax or whatever it was. Eventually, we went to um, we went to the emergency room. They thought it was just an, an infection or something. They started pumping with the antibiotics for a full week. They were picking at it. They were doing who knows what with it. And then a week later, we sent it in for a biopsy, and it was a growth. Um, it was something called a schwarnoma, um, and it was really, again, this was a year after we've gotten married. Um, we're out of our apartment, uh, you know, for, for, for a thing, so everything was flying, and I just started this new job or whatever. And finally, we, so, so thank God, we reached out to various different, whether it was RCCS or whether it was, um, uh, what's, what's the Chaim one that, Chaim Vechesed, yeah. Mm-hmm. They helped us tremendously. We weren't, we were barely on, you know, the health insurance over there or whatever it was. And eventually, we just, the the problem was that thank God they they didn't know for the first few days. We didn't know whether it was you know malignant or not. But eventually, um, after the surgery, they confirmed that it wasn't. So thank God. 
Um, but they, but it took them a week to figure out what it was. And then once they figure out what it was, the specialties, the, the special, the, you know, the, 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 the doctors over there, the specialists over there weren't really on par because the, the problem is that it's, it's, it's very close to something called nerve four. Nerve four is in the ear and it controls the movement in the left side of the face. So the problem is that if they even went one millimeter off while removing this growth, then it could, God forbid, you know, affect the face. So we decided to get the best specialist and we flew and thank God we found through the help of so many different individuals and my father-in-law, he just like spent hours and hours on this. He's, you know, obviously he's a mortgage broker. He's busy. He has a big family, lives in LA. You know I mean? He's got a hustle. Instead, he like literally took, you know, a bunch of time off his life to help me. And we finally found the specialist in John Hopkins. We moved to Baltimore for three months for the treatment and the and the surge and the surgery. While I was there, obviously I was not in my yeshiva setting, so I told the guy I was working for, "Okay, I want up. You know, what I mean, I want more time." So even though we were going through the treatment, but the time I was actually in the hospital was very minimal until the actual six-hour surgery. Um, I think which was in the third month we were there. So during those two months, I told him I want management. So I came on half a day as management, you know, obviously managing more of the company. Now it's already starting to grow. I start already signing contracts with, you know, whether it's institutions or colleges, it already starts growing and we start finding new teachers and we start, you know, really getting our name out there, finding the publications, you know, and the, and the spots where to advertise and market. So I was really learning from the ground up. And then I guess I had the surgery Fun fact, the morning after that six-hour surgery, I worked a regular eight-hour workday. <laughs> and then uh, I, I guess I was hustling because I wasn't in yeshiva. I was not I, I, I was kind of lost, so I decided, okay, I might as well hustle. And then eventually we flew back. We went to Miami for a day or two, then flew back to Israel. And uh, we were back in Israel for the next year. And then nine months ago, so it kept going like that. Nine months ago, I said to the guys, all right. Um, you know, I, I, by then I'd taken over total management. I was working nine till five, which I guess is 4 p.m. till 12 a.m. Israeli time. I was hustling away and I was, I'd, I'd grown the company essentially, you know, by I think it was 260% or whatever it was. So I told them, okay, I want in. So in the end, Wait, they said, I want in. What do you mean by that? Partnership, partnership, not partnership, just being an okay. employee. I want partnership. So eventually they just threw an astronomical, uh, for 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 that for me then it was astronomical figure and they said you can buy us out if you give us this because they weren't really interested anymore they they you know they 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 saw that I was giving it my all and they felt that that they they you know they they born the idea but then they got they they yeah they got kind of bored of the idea so um so they threw the amount and I had no idea where I was going to get this money from. Um, so, but I knew I had to buy this. I knew this was my passion. I loved helping people, hearing that people, you know, were getting jobs, hearing that people were able to get degrees, hearing that people were able to get education, people who could have never imagined that, um, you know, attaining that kind of education before it just, it it made me swell. And I've actually got now, it's, we're putting it out soon. We've got an hour and a half of audio feedback of just snippets from phone calls and WhatsApp voice notes and everything. It's just insane. The gushing has been insane. We've got 97% success rate. Which is which just shows I never imagined in my life that I would ever be able to help people so much. So it's it's been gratifying. It's been unbelievable. Anyway, so they named this astronomical sum, and I had seen in a so obviously my uncle is a big guy in Chabad, and I had also seen. Um, Didn't uh, say that yet. 
Okay. Right. Yeah. Ob- yeah. Obviously. What do you mean? <laughs> okay. So yeah. Your, uncle, was, your, your wife's yeah. your wife's uncle. Your uncle in my in, uncle. In so my wife. Okay. So 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 my mother's sister, second marriage. She married a guy from Crown Heights. Eventually, okay. he moved with her to the, the you know the United to the UK. Um, mm-hmm. Now he's a rabbi in Jerusalem. He commutes every 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 week. Anyway, mm-hmm. from England to from UK to to Jerusalem. Anyway, so he'd hooked me up. One of the Shabbos I was here over the two years I was here originally in Passaic which were crazy two years. There's so much to say, but whatever. We'll be here forever. Um, then I spent quite a few Shabbos in Crown Heights. He hooked me up. I stayed by one of the Rabashkins for a Shabbos, and it was a crazy Shabbos. We met, like, a bunch of singers, and we met... And, and um, we, it was our first, you know, to our first, I guess, um, our first time seeing... Our first exposure to, like, Chabad Hasidus and, and, and the okay. whole way of life and the family life and everything. Anyway, so... Um, he had, I'd, I'd met someone back then who had mentioned something that a guy does funding, a certain guy does funding, if you want to buy your partner or something like that. So, and then I was skimming one of the magazines, one of the Jewish magazines that week, and I finally came across SBA Loan Group. SBA Loan Group is, I, I, I'm sure you've heard of it. There's Yankee Markowitz, Mendy Belenkin, two great guys. And they're my current partners, believe it or not. Haha. <laughs> so yeah, basically what yeah. happened is I called them up and I was like, dude, I need a loan. And they were like, scrap the loan. We love the idea. We want to invest. So, uh, and that was that. And uh, they, they invested. And, um, you know, it's been, it's just been incredible because they've got amazing, like big vision. You know, they're not like payback, payback the investment. They're like invest, throw everything you need. You know what I mean? They've got, you know, obviously they've got the funding needed if we need to go further. And they've just been the most incredible partners. And um, obviously, I, I don't think anyone realized my age at the time. And even now when I go into give presentations, you know, this beard, for example, I don't usually have a beard. I put it on because I just gave a presentation. <laughs> you have some beard glue yeah. and you... No. <laughs> very good i just grew it for a few weeks i'm being deadly serious and most of my employees are 15 10 to 15 years older than me and i guess my partners are quite a bit older than me but i guess it was really the hustle that paid off and thank god i guess that's that and uh wow. what can i see it's been a crazy journey wow okay let's talk about the let's talk about the industry so how did you you love the idea, and it was called Fluent Talk from the beginning. Is that that's the name of the correct? When well, my friend opened it, it was okay. called Fluent Talk, but we like rebranded okay. when we yeah. You rebranded. So tell us about that. What, what what's that? Yes. So basically, at the beginning, it was more of a trial and error situation. We were like, we want to teach people a language, but we weren't sure exactly how. Um, you know, obviously, you've got your Duolingo, you've got your, you know, you've got a dictionary, you've got many, many different, you know, you've got a lot of YouTube tutorials, but we we, we were trying to find the exact. Um, the exact methodology we wanted to use. And then eventually, after a lot of trial and error, back and forth, back and forth, and obviously also being able to cater to higher, you know, more advanced students, students who didn't want to just advance their, you know, advance their regular, like, students who weren't making regular grammar mistakes, but they want to advance their vocabulary or they're working in specific niches and therefore are markets and therefore they needed, you know, specific professional communication skills. Obviously, it was a lot of trial and error and slowly but surely we advanced our, our, our curriculum. But our main methodology came out that it's a conversational um a conversational methodology, as in obviously not just conversational, meaning you're not just getting on the phone with someone. But besides for the conversation during the conversation, let's say, for example, the student, you know, so we really try and eke out of them the English that they do know. If they don't know any English, obviously, we start, we have a whole a whole build-up system. But if most of them do, and uh, as soon as they make a grammar mistake, the teacher will interject. 
um, the coach, we call it, because it's more than just a teacher. He explains me how to do review and everything. Uh, he'll interject and he'll say, okay, we wouldn't say it like that. We would say it like this and then explain the reason. So it's not a boring class that someone is sitting through. It's more of a, you know, more of a, a you know, a conversation. It can be about anything, whether the student wants or the teacher wants. They, you know, agree on a, on, on a topic. And so it's a really, it's a great experience. A lot of the students look forward to it. You know, I mean, let's say they have a 15-minute drive twice a week and commute to work. They can take it on the way to work. And then we interject and explain it. Do you want me to give a quick example or, or, or sure, yeah, yeah. time? Yeah, I'd love to hear. Love yeah, so to hear. Let me give you an example. So let's say, for example, most of our clients now, thank God, we've opened up to other markets. But most of our clients are from the Hasidic, I guess, the Hasidic arena. And um, in Yiddish, there are, or, or even in Hebrew, there are a lot of words, which in English, we have two substitutes for a word for, 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 for a, I guess, a word that in, in, in Yiddish or Hebrew, you would only have one word for. Let me give you an example um drive right so obviously we know that would say um i drive a uh, you know i drive to work every day um i'm driving to work now so obviously you know uh, th- those of us that 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 have, that have native english speakers we know that there's something called present progressive present general you know i drive to work as every day i'm driving means i'm literally driving now but obviously in yiddish and even in ivrit you say ani noheg ani noheg achshav i'm drive i drive or I'm driving now, you just add on achshav, but the actual root word of the verb does not change. So a lot of times they mix that up because in Yiddish as well, it's like that. So um, an interesting story, I, I just I just posted on LinkedIn the other day and got crazy feedback. We had a guy who was having, it's interesting, sad, but we're, we're getting there. Um, well, I'm saying we're trying to resolve the issue. Uh, one of our students had a, well, he wasn't a student yet. He called me up after this fiasco that he had an interview with someone and he had a great head, but because of family predicament, he'd been, dri- he'd been you know, a bus driver, like for kids within the community um, because I think his wife had... Um, cancer or something um and uh he was unable to take a regular job but finally i think she's in remission thank god and he was he was um uh, i hope i use that term right yeah remission is that how they say it yeah um yeah so remission thank god and he had decided to apply for a real job so he he spent two weeks preparing for an interview and anyway, the guy called him up and said okay so what do you do now as in what do you do for a living like your general occupation at the moment and he said i'm driving a bus now, obviously, what he meant to say is I drive a bus in general, right? And the interviewer, like the potential employer, were like, you're driving a bus? Like, as I'm speaking to you, he felt so disrespected, he shut the phone down. He was like, you're wow. driving while you're on an interview? And that was just such a poignant example like wow. how you know if he oh, if he had come to us he would know that and let, let me give you an example even just that grammar rule is applicable to 55% of our speech because 55% of our speech are doing words are verbs so it's incredible how if they can get one so this is how we do it it's conversational they can see it come to their conversation but we also explain the actual foundation the rule and this way they're able to exploit that and use it or you know and use it the rest of their speech and we've seen insane success it's like it's it's not like beyond what we expect we never expected you know most people and yeah i guess also it's motivating it's one-on-one you've got a live lesson coming up you know let's say it's not a course courses there's a stat only three percent of online courses get followed through three percent is nothing Right, you're the you're the converse of the ninety seven percent. Right. Oh, that's good. That's good. I didn't recall that. Got it. That was a good catch. Yeah. So um, yeah, 
So, uh, so, th- so, yeah, and we also have these beautiful emails that go out straight after. As the, te- as the coach is coaching, he's typing the feedback. So you don't have to type your feedback. You can be doing your thing. And we designed it. These Hasidic guys, they're busy, right? Remember, they're supporting families. They're not college students who've got a lot of time to learn, right? So we have like twice a week for 15 minutes, and then they spend their own time doing review. So we've been able to basically maximize and leverage the minimum amount of time for the maximum output. Um, and then obviously we also have, um, you know, essay coaching and email coaching for executives or even not executives, people who feel because to us as native English speakers and to a lot of people not, by the way, now we also cater for a lot of non-Hasidic Jews, a lot of people who English, who, for whom English is their first language. But for, for a lot of people, it's not natural to just pop out an email, to pop out a message. It's just not natural. How do I start the message? Do I say to whom it may concern? Do I say dear? Do I say hi? How do I finish off? Do I say sincerely? Do I say awaiting your response? Do I say have a good day? How do I present a pitch? How do I present an idea? To repetitive, whatever it is. Um, so, so, so obviously we've gone that and essay coaching. I just got off a meeting with, um, you know, one of the deans of a very prestigious college and they have a lot of non-native English speakers and they, they you know, how someone's supposed to write a thesis when they can barely write a paragraph. So, um, with appreciate, but the main thing is we do it with appreciation and admiration. We adore the community, right? It's not done with mocking. It's not done with undermining. We adore and we wish, you know, I wish I could live my life like that. Sadly, I wasn't brought up like that, so I don't think I could change. I try as much as I can, but it's done with utter admiration of their of their of their strength and backbone to values, and it's it's, it's incredible. It's incredible to see. Good. Yeah, beautiful what you're doing. Wow. Okay, so are all of the coaches Jewish, Jewish, and under and speaking Yiddish and understanding the background of the of your clients? So they all understand, and that is really a that is really a prerequisite. They do, or or if not, part of the training is really training in the cultural sensitivity. They're all Jewish. Some are modern, some less. Some. Uh, we try not to take from a Hasidic background, um, just so that no one should feel, you know, no one should, you know, it shouldn't dredge up anything for anyone, or it shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be a conflict it of interest be too ever. Close. Yeah, it shouldn't be too close. Families that know also, each other. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the students, the students feel amazing that they can speak to someone, and it's like they're 15 minutes a week. A lot of them use it as therapy sessions. You know what I mean? Where they can just talk to someone and think. Um, but obviously, that's not the game. The, the, the aim, the aim of the game, is that English, and we constantly get back to there. And I'm constantly encouraging my coaches. Um, most of them actually live in Israel because they're, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable how many expats moved out there, and a lot of them are really, really, really good. So, um, so we've seen a lot of success with employing from Israel. Um, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess that's that. Um, some of them are Bali Chuva, some of them, but, but not all of them know Yiddish. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, obviously, the more advanced students don't need someone who, who knows Yiddish. He can explain in English the grammar rule or the advancement or the coaching or whatever he has to do. Do your coaches have to learn the how to how to the methodology, explain the grammar rules? Yeah, the, the, yeah. the methodology. We have the you told me you told me present participle, and you know we don't think about right. these things. We just we just know how to speak English, so we we say them. But, I, right. but when you have to teach it, you have to maybe. No, right. The, the aim of the game is to use as l- as little fancy words as possible, as few fancy words as possible. So we don't. If, if we can explain the rule without using participle or without using this or that, then that's that's the best thing. We want the output. We don't. We 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 don't care about the medium. We care about the output. So because and that's what we're driving. And that that that's why. By the way, 
quick quip about the Hasidic community. If they see value, they buy and they will pay for whatever you you're, you're, you offer. If they don't see value, you can be the best salesman in the world. You will not be able to sell. And they, they, they will, they, they'll smell it in a second. Um, I guess, I guess that's Jew, <laughs> Jew, Jewish, Jewish uh, IQ, I guess, to, to the highest. I was, one, I was telling someone last week, you know, um, obviously I'm, you know, a certified salesman um, by, by a few different places. And I said, listen, I could take a dirty tissue and I could sell it to anyone. I could convince them of the value because that's just my thing. I said, them, they'll see in a second. And it was amazing that this was our market research because we were able to top, like get to a top-notch like level of value. And now as we move out to other other markets, Dubai, actually the Ministry of Education of Dubai just reached out to us. That's, a, that's another story. But... Wow. Um, as we move out to other markets, we now know that we have a solid, valuable product. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, are you recruiting all the time because you're growing? Yes. I mean, the whole you're time. recruiting coaches, right? Yes, the whole time. We really are, but we. I'm. This sounds sounds uh, bigoted. We only take one percent. We 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 only take one percent of applicants because the, you know, having to be a people's person. And by the way, if anyone listening to this, you know. It happens to speak Yiddish, or even if they don't speak Yiddish, but it happens to, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your students are, are students in Israel are the best. A lot of them have been our best employees. Then sure, reach out to us, um, myfluenttalk.com. Um, and then the, the, I, I guess being a people's person, being able to keep the conversation going, being able to motivate the student, being able to understand their culture and being able to really, really relay something in an understandable way is, 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 is tough. The stuff, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking as, as you expand, let's say you start working with the Ministry of Education of Dubai and you're going to right. have different cultures to understand. You know, and, and it Definitely. sounds like you already have different cultures to understand. You're, you're, you're right. People are already calling you for help in English. Yep. Maybe, yeah. Right. We do have, we have quite a few Spanish, uh, you know, whether it's Mexican or Colombian or Chinese. Uh, we ha- do have quite a few others. We haven't totally exploded into those markets, or like they, recently we were looking into China. Still in talks with a couple of people, but um, I don't know if they would. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously we do charge a premium because we're made for U.S. citizens. You know, people who live in the U.S. who generally pay more. Um, so we, you know, like even China, I've been exploring the market. It would have to be that we target people from Beijing with a slightly higher class. So I guess it's all about your niche. Um, he said, you know, I was speaking to someone who's an expert on this. He's like boots on the ground in China for, you know, U.S. businesses or international businesses trying to get into business in China. And he said, you know, you can either target the 95% at a, with an economy service or you can do a premium service and then, um, and then, uh, you know, target the 5% niche of like higher class, you know, people who really want to break, you know, guess, I guess break their generational uh, lack of knowledge of Western stuff, you know. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess with every business, that's a challenge. You know, do you target the economy? Do you target the premium? Yeah. What is the most challenging part of this business? I guess on the operate, um, you're on the management level, right? But are you a coach for for any clients directly? I do some VIPs. Yeah, I okay. do. And also, I like to keep fresh. I like to keep fresh. I get involved in anything. I get my hands dirty with everything. Right. Really. Like if it means, you know, again, I'll, I'll do sales. I'll do, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do coaching. You know, if something needs taken care of the, the, I'm here for my coaches really, you know, I, I, I'm there, the management, I'm the dirty work. That's my, that's my, that's my, uh, that's my mantra, but I really, 
Yeah, but I really like, like, um, yeah, we have, let's say, for example, some of the grand rabbis that they have, you know, grandkids, and they want to really, really make sure that their kids don't hear anything that they wouldn't want them to be exposed to. So they have, they have met me before. As I said, we have a very close relationship with a lot of the communities. So they'll say, hey, could you coach them? Can we, can we ask you to do it? So obviously, usually I'm insanely busy and I don't really have the time, but I make the time. And um, yeah, and also uh, from when I was a coach, I still have clients that I was very, very loyal to. And I feel like just because I came to management or ownership, I can't just leave them. Yeah, I can't just give them over to other coaches. I've tried. It didn't work. And they, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's been, it's also, it's also matching up this kind of students with the kind of coaches, right? So when someone calls in to book his package or to have his trial or whatever it is, well, immediately within a few minutes, we have to realize, you know, what kind of guy is he? What kind of coaches do we have? And all the scheduling is so complicated because you've got a bunch of different schedules all going on. Obviously, there are systems, not good enough systems, <laughs> but uh, we, you know, it's a it's a challenge. And um, I guess my biggest challenge, if you ask me, my biggest challenge is micromanaging. So that's my biggest challenge, straight up. Uh, <laughs> I like being. I, I'm just gonna have to be vulnerable about this. It's uh, it's it's taken me so long. Like even now recently we promoted one of our best teachers to a training coordinator and he develops a lot of the curriculum but more than that he hires and fires and that's a and that's a um you know unless unless obviously i override him but and it was just it was so hard for me to do that like he gave 20 20 or 22 interviews over the last few weeks and i was not involved and it was in the olden days i would you know turn my hair <laughs> yeah i i, I couldn't have even thought of that I guess slowly but surely you work with a coach or whatever and you you see the fruits of the labor. It's the only way to scale. Yeah. Well, so there's so much to talk about in terms of how to, how to build the business, how to scale the business. I, I just want to go into the more human element, which is because you're working as a coach, you, you started out as a coach with personal, you know, one-on-one -on -one clients and you still do that um, with the VIPs. So what's the most challenging part of, of that interplay between the coach and the, and the client? I don't understand the question fully, but if I've understood it, I think review is the hardest. These people are so busy and it's so hard for them to find that time to review because, again, they're coming to us after they already have a few kids. They already have a family to support. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, they're, I guess their in-laws or their parents helped them out for a few years after their wedding. But then suddenly when they're 25, 26 and they, they have burgeoning growing family, burgeoning growing families, then, you know, suddenly they have to, you know, bring in 150, 200, 250, 300K a year, they're dumped straight into whatever they have. Also, a lot of them cannot get nine to five jobs because of their English initially. So they're forced into entrepreneurship, right? Is that, this that, is an that incredible. I, so I don't know because a lot of them are not equipped for it. Yeah. And a lot of people say, but look at those guys, but look at those guys who, who, who are so, you know, so successful. And it is true. One out of every 200 are insanely successful, even though they don't know a word of English. I spoke to a guy the other day. He developed just, he just developed a 40 story building in Connecticut. And he told me that he didn't have to speak a word of English until bringing in the post cleanup crew. He got his wife to call, um, the post construction cleanup crew. But that, 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 that's more, sorry, I've just, I've just, I've just uh, digressed. That's more because the Hasidic community, thank God, are becoming more and more self-sufficient. You know, um, he can speak to another Hasidic guy, uh, you know, who speaks in his own dialect, you know, regarding the funding, regarding the interior design. There's whole schools for interior designs, Hasidic guys. There's whole schools for, you know, blueprint. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it's, a lot of them are going into politics now. We have two assemblymen in our, enrolled in our program. 
Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Wow. You have people, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I guess the challenge is review and motivation, but um, yeah. The challenge is, I mean, the cha- it's the coach's challenge to make sure that the student reviews and is motivated. That's what you mean. Yeah, and yeah. and that's a big, cha- big, big, big challenge during hiring as well. You know, you have those coaches who answer the phone at the beginning, the beginning of the lesson. They call a student, and the student goes hello, and you can go either go hi, it's Benson with Fluent Talk, or you can say hi, it's Benson with Fluent Talk. I'm calling you for your lesson. Dude, he's not going to be motivated. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I hear you, yeah. Okay, now just a few closing questions. It may, uh, I think you hinted in the way you were talking about, about this, there's different types of guys. Guys, it, mostly you're dealing with the men, right? And not the women. I, I'm, I'm assuming because the men feel the traditionally in the community that you're dealing with, the men feel that it's their burden to, it's their responsibility and, and, you know, obligation to support their family. So they're the ones that feel that they have to go out and do it, right? Is that correct? Uh, sorry, just a quick tweak. More than that, it's the men, the women officially have English studies. They officially uh-huh. have the education, but not that they still have a very, not the best, right? They really, a lot of them need help. And we do have a women's track, right? We have this mm-hmm. unbelievable woman in Bichemesh who works and, and, and she teaches the women's track. And also we have a lot of Israelis, a lot of foreigners who come in and, you know, they marry U.S. citizens, whatever it is. They end up settling down in America. Um, so they really learn more, I guess, in school would be the bottom line why mostly men uh, reach out. And also the, mm-hmm. the sheltered lifestyle obviously has much more of an effect on the men. And number two is I just want to I just want to let you know that it's incredible. The women entrepreneurs, like the, the, the entrepreneurial spirit of the female population within these areas is absolute insanity. I have never seen it at levels like this before. I recently went to a construction show. Um, obviously, we're, we're applicable to every single industry within the Hasidic Kela. So therefore, we're at every show um, or a lot of shows. And I was there, and the amount of women with companies, with 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 managerial roles, with executive, with 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 with, with C-suite roles was, it's 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 blown out of hand. And they'll come with the full Hasidic garb, you know, with whether it's their hats on top of their wigs, and whether it's their bulletproof stockings or whatever you want to call it. It's unbelievable the explosion. Just go on LinkedIn and try and and, and look at the amount of Hasidic women who, you know, are really really. Uh, what can I say? It's uh, yeah. it's wow, something. Okay. It's something which has exploded lately. Yeah, it's it's very important that you're that this interview. I hope I hope a lot of people listen to it because there's so much bad talk down. Uh, what's the, what's the word? Bad mouthing. That's the word. I'm bad mouthing about the Hasidic and the insular, um, the insular nature of the Hasidic, Hasidic community. And I'm not. No, this is no surprise mm. to anybody. I'm not Hasidic, but. Um, <laughs> The right. lot of the world, the broader world, does not know the distinction. By the way, it's not. It's interesting. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you've. I'm going to give you a that. quick scoop. Going to give you a quick yeah. scoop. And after that, an article that obviously everybody knows. You're referring to the article in the New York Times. Obviously, I do not want to go into it. There's only the one New article. York... I thought it's. I thought it's all the time. <laughs> Very good. The it New is. York Times. <laughs> the one about the one about education specifically. The New York Times actually okay. reached out to us for comment. Interesting. And uh, and uh, you know we decided obviously you, you know we asked we asked we know we asked a lot of we asked a lot of you know different rabbis you know what they think if we respond are we giving into their into their mantra into their rhetoric and we decided just to not respond but um, and also put it like this I, I think we have to face reality reality is that what they're saying to a degree all even the Hasidic Jews I've spoken to the 
the grandest rabbis, doesn't it? They all agree that to a degree, you know, there is obviously there are problems just like there are in every single education system. But to blame the decline of society on education system, there are so many other communities within New York, not Jewish or not Hasidic, that have a decline, that have seen a consistent decline in society. Um, and and they're not blaming any of those on education. Why are they blaming the Hasidic one on education? I think that that is the main thing, and therefore that shows that it's driven by hate rather than either by hate or by non-understanding rather than intellect. But again, this is just such a huge conversation. We could be here forever. Yeah, yeah, we have to wrap it up. But Bensi, this has been amazing. And uh, let me ask you like this. Since our core audience is Jewish young adults all over the world that are just now getting involved with understanding Judaism from the source and, you know, hearing what the Torah has to say about all the kinds of contemporary topics and, and connecting on a, on a personal level with mentors. So, so what would you say here? You're a young, successful business person. You found a way to service not only your, the Jewish people, but really much, much broader than that. What, what message would you, would you want to give over to a young Jewish person who is, you know, why, who was asking the question, like, why is this, why is it compelling to get involved learning, learn about my Judaism to become more, you know, more identified with my people? So what advice would I give to such individuals? I'm probably putting you on the spot. Right. It's fine. <laughs> two things. Number one, don't believe everything you say. Number two, every society has their crazies. Don't believe right? everything you say or everything you hear? Don't believe every. sorry, don't believe everything you hear. Okay. Really don't. <laughs> This, you know, this guy says this, this guy says that, this guy says this, just, you know, keep digging. Don't just believe, keep digging. And number two is every society has their crazies. You cannot take the words of one person and say, this is what Judaism holds. This is what Judaism says. You'll get so mixed up, just like in every society. You can go to Christianity. You can go to any, 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 any religion, you know, even over here, we live in Vegas, a bunch of more, a lot of, it's a Mormon mainly Mormon community over here. Someone told us something absolutely mind-blowing about Mormons. And then we approached our neighbors. We asked them, and they were like, that's absolute garbage. It's one tiny cult within the Mormon sect that practices that. So, and just really don't, don't believe, you know, I guess they're intertwined. Don't believe everything you hear and every society, you've just got to keep digging until you reach the one that identifies with you, not just believe that they represent Judaism or they represent this or they represent that. I guess that from personal experience, that's why I would say, yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that perspective. And I appreciate that. That's, I wouldn't have thought that uh, the, the, the main, um, I guess, turnoff would be the, what the crazies are doing, but that's, it's good to hear. I guess that's how, that's how you see it. (laughs) Right. I'm saying the other tips are, are knowledge, but I'm saying even prior to knowledge from where you're getting your knowledge from, those are guidance to where you get your knowledge from. So those are keys to, Right. You know, gaining your knowledge. Yeah. Very good. Okay, Bensi, thank you so much for your time. You said you have a crazy schedule and you just took an hour of your time to, to meet with us and share share your story. And we really appreciate this. And no hopefully it will be able to get out and, and help a lot of people. And what you're doing is incredible and you should continue to grow it and help help all the help all these people integrate in the way that's, that's you know, suitable for them. Okay. Thank you. Be well. Awesome. Thank you. Be well. See you. Bye.
You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.